I say to people all the time, sometimes I do business in the South. I know those boys cannot take full frontal Carla. So sometimes they get Carla light. They are Carla light just as much a part of who Carla is. You still feel that's authentic. Absolutely, because that's all of who you are. Now you're audience. Every one of us, I mean, we are so hyphenated. We're working moms, tiger moms, soccer moms, snack moms, stay-at-home mom. We're all of that. And that doesn't separate us. That brings us together as a community. We can be all of those things and still be ourselves. That was an excerpt from a panel of powerhouse women sharing their best advice to embrace and bring your authentic selves to everything you do. And this is Best Breakouts from the Conferences for Women, an audio series that offers timeless insights from our archives to help you advance at work and in life. In this session, How to Become an Authentic Leader, you'll discover how to reach beyond your comfort zone, increase your leadership presence, and explore strategies to eliminate feelings of inadequacy to find and use your most powerful and genuine voice. This engaging conversation is moderated by Leslie Jane Seymour, a media entrepreneur, former editor of Moore Magazine, and the creator of Covey Club, which is a virtual meeting place that connects women in pursuit of learning and achieving their dreams. Let's get started so you can meet our panelists. Thank you all for being here. We're really excited. I have incredible panelists here. We're going to start by having them go around and just briefly introduce themselves and give a little bit of their background. Why don't we start with Nina? Sure. My name is Nina Tassler. I am the currently an advisor and former chairman of CBS Entertainment. I held that post since 2004. Prior to that, I was the president of CBS. Before that, I ran drama development at CBS. Before that, I was the executive vice president of drama development at Warner Brothers Studios. While at CBS, I developed shows CSI, NCIS, The Big Bang Theory, The Good Wife. And a little secret, there's a sequel coming to CBS All Access. And then while at Warner Brothers, I was one of several people involved in developing ER, which was an extraordinary experience. Prior to that, I was a talent agent at one of the four largest theatrical agencies in Hollywood. Before that, I was a receptionist. And before that, I was an actress. So that's where I started. And I am so honored awesome. to be here today. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Anna? Sure. Hannah Grove. I'm a CMO for State Street, which, spoiler alert, does not stand for Chief Medical Officer. Oh. I'm a Chief Marketing Officer, which means I think, like Nina, I'm responsible for producing a lot of dramas. Like Nina, I actually started out my career as an actress. But that was a very brief blip before I moved speedily into my second career as a waitress, where I lasted a lot longer. I'm a very proud mother of an 18-year-old, and I'm even prouder to be here with more than 1,500 incredible State Street women today. So who's running State Street? Hi, and I am Carla Harris. I am a vice chairman at Morgan Stanley and managing director. I'm also a gospel recording artist. I've done three CDs and five sold-out concerts at Carnegie Hall. I'm also the author of two books, Expect to Win and Strategize to Win. I'll be signing the books right after this, so meet me in the hall. I'm also the chair 
of the National Women's Business Council appointed by President Obama in 2013. And so the council is responsible for giving advice. I call it a consultative body to the White House, the Congress, and also to the Small Business Administration on all things as they relate to women entrepreneurs and women leaders. And I'm also the proud mother of a 17-month-old. And as I said to a few of my colleagues this morning, I fought for a lot of titles in my life, but that's the best one yet. Thank you. And that's absolutely, absolutely amazing, Carla. The hardest job you will ever have, I will tell you. Okay, so executive vice president, vice chairman, president. Okay, these are all titles that all three of you or more have held or have at some of the most respected businesses in America, State Street, Morgan Stanley, CBS Entertainment. They are not the titles of women trying to make it, obviously, right? They are the titles of women who have proven themselves as successful leaders. But I want you to let us 2,000 women in on a small secret. Mm -hmm. Has there ever been a time when you felt like a fraud or imagined that other people thought you were more capable than you really were? Who wants to jump in there? I'll just start by saying that I have wrestled with that most of my adult life. I think part of it comes from the fact that where I set out, where I started in life, I dreamed of being an actress. I went to Boston University right here in town, studied Go Terriers. And that was my goal. That was my dream. That was my ambition. And so I was able to create characters. I was able to create personas for myself. And that's what I hid behind. But that's what I was trained to do. And then all of a sudden, I had to step out from behind that mask and I had to be myself. I think the challenge was learning to be myself and learning to be myself, not only have a voice, but have an opinion and learn a business. I do not have a business background. I can sing, I can dance, I can do Shakespeare, but I did not have a business background. But I knew that I loved television. I knew that I loved actors. I loved the business. So I really had to train myself. There was no degree in agenting. There was no degree in development. There was no course of study in how to run a television studio. There was no program to learn how to be a network president. And I had to teach myself. And I had to take ownership of that learning curve And I had to realize that I was going to walk in my own shoes. There were very few women in my business. I'm one of three presidents of network television in the history of network television. Wow. So I had no one to learn from, and I had to learn from myself. So there was always that sense of, can I trust myself? Can I trust my instincts? Am I deserving? Am I responsible? I still wrestle with that. But again, with success comes confidence, but there still is that little narrative back there that plays itself on a loop in the back of my head. And constantly there's that mantra to say, stop the tape. Don't let it play. I don't want to hear it anymore. So that's part of my experience. Either of you guys? Yeah. I mean, I think there was a sort of 10 year stretch in my life where people definitely added points to my IQ because of my British accent. And Ah. what Nina said about that talk tape in your head, I actually think that One of the sort of biggest contributors to the sort of so-called imposter syndrome is the voice in your head that is telling you you can't do something. Mm -hmm. And I have an unusual background, acting like Nina, then straight shot into waitressing. I didn't graduate high school. I didn't get to go to university because I had to look after my family. And 
So many people told me there is no way, no way you'll be able to break into your field because you don't have the qualifications. And I think it's very easy. You can be very susceptible to respond to that and what you have to do. And I think mantra is a really perfect word because you absolutely have to change that talk tape and say, I can absolutely do it. And it's about looking with those eyes forward with confidence. And I always tell people who say, well, I'm not very confident and I don't think I can do that. Confidence is a muscle. I mean, how many of us get up every morning or an evening and go to the gym to exercise, right? Tons of us. Well, you've got to apply that same maxim to practicing to be confident. And that I think is a big piece of it. Okay. And I will say that I did not have the crisis of feeling like I was an imposter. I always had the confidence that I could do it. And my parents and my grandmother, my paternal grandmother in particular, always made me feel like I was supposed to do well, that I had the goods. But what I was vulnerable to was people coming up to question it Mm -hmm. and making me think, which is why I made this comment that I made this morning. Don't give away your power. So often when people start to question, and how did you get here? And should you really be here? That resolve that you had walking in, it starts to get impaired, right? So that's when I started to realize that, and someone told me this very early on in my career, nobody can make you feel inferior without your permission. That's exactly right. right? So you gave it away. You let them do that. So once I started realizing what was happening, then I put a stop to it to say, ah, okay, I see what's happening. They're trying to make me doubt myself. And then the other thing that I started to realize is that when people expend the effort to try to make you feel less than, that means you're really good. Right. Because oh, yeah, right? they wouldn't bother. They wouldn't right? bother. They see the competition. They see you as a threat. They're looking at you saying, uh-oh. Right? And so now they're trying to expend some energy to do this to you, to keep you out or to stop you or to make you doubt. So when I saw that, I would get even extra confidence. I said, uh-huh. Y'all see me coming. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You said something, Carlos, did something early this morning that I just thought was so fantastic. It's like when you get the power, you give it away. Absolutely. And I had a boss and the words that he gave me are so valuable and so liberating. And they were, there's no limit to what a person can do if they don't mind who gets the credit. And all of a sudden, when you let that go and you don't worry about being me, me, I did it. All of a sudden, you realize you have an army of people with whom you work, and there's your power. There's your strength. And they're supporting you. And they're supporting you. Right. And that's why I talked about execution to empowerment, because so often we are absolutely outstanding individual contributors. And when we get a promotion or we get the power, we want to hold on to that thing that we were doing and take on the new responsibility and the new responsibility and the new responsibility until we're drowning. And many times we can't then outperform when in fact what you're supposed to do is let that thing go. Right. Give it to somebody else so that they can shine. And now guess what? You have somebody that is beholden to you. Right. Somebody who will have your back and then you can move forward because you cannot get to second base with your foot still on first. Right. You got to let it go. Right. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I, I always ran a team like that and they would do those hot 360 degree things and stick you on a grid and they would come up to me. I ran Mary Claire USA at that point and they would say, all the other editors are in this quadrant. You're in this quadrant. 
you're not taking credit for everything. They're all in this authoritarian area and they're going, you're not going to make it here. And are you doing this on purpose? And I said, yes, because I like to run a team. That's the whole idea. I can't take all the credit for everything. 32 heads are better than one. And they were like, okay, if you're doing it on purpose, it's okay. So it's a very different kind of thing. Like who would think of not running a team? I had people come to work with me at four different magazines for that reason. They would follow me. It's exactly what And hire people that are better than you. Yes. Always. I mean, that is like number one secret to success. Shine the light on the other people, right? Right. Yeah. So let's talk about imposter syndrome. Hat is a name. And it does happen mostly among high achieving women. So why do you think that is? I have to say, I've worked with a lot of men who knew one eighth of what I knew and they had no imposter syndrome. So why they don't admit to it? Right. Do you think they do? And we just are more honest about it and we admit to it. What do you guys think? I think it goes down to something that Carla touched on in that I think there's two factors. One, we don't say no enough. And we don't necessarily have the confidence to say no, which means the pylon happens, the burnout happens. It's a domino effect. Yes. And then I think the second thing that we do, which starts early on in career that women are particularly susceptible to, is honestly, I would not have 300 pairs of shoes. I would have 600 pairs of shoes if I got a dollar for every time a woman prefaced a contribution at a meeting by saying, this may be a stupid question. I mean, how many times do you hear women do that? Yeah, we take ourselves down before we we even step up. Right. We start to sort of put it in the vernacular and put it in the vocabulary And then it sort of, it marks us right the way. I've never heard a man say that. And I think we have to be very, very careful and very intentional from the moment our careers begin about what we say. I always tell women as well, don't go to a meeting if you don't have a contribution or if you don't have a speaking role. You're not the person with the notebook. And I used to toddle around with my notebook and pen. No, guess what? Very few men show up with a notebook. So I think Good it's point. those little sort of small things that really matter. You're shaking well, I'm saying you know? only because there's a saying working in Hollywood where information is power. And what would happen is you'd make part of your job getting the goods on who's doing what, who's got a gig, who's got a show about to pitch, who's and I would never walk into a meeting without having and forgive me for saying this a good piece of gossip. I mean, there was always something going on somewhere. And nine times out of 10, there is a community of women in Hollywood and we talk and we share and we take care of each other and we watch each other's backs. But you would walk in and you knew you had the knowledge, you had the information, you had the goods and you controlled that meeting based on when and where and how you shared the information that you had that only you had privy to because you had that secret society. Yeah. And that you had currency, your and currency, gossip. Your but currency. to your point about the meeting, I tell people don't be intimidated and not go to the meeting because you don't feel like you have something. Because the problem with us is that we will devalue that Absolutely. which we have to contribute. So we'll say, well, I can't say that because Peter just said that. And I can't say that because Sam just said that. So even though they might have had something, they think now they can't say anything because it was said. So what I say is if you go to the meeting, don't go into the meeting and not say something. And if you run, question. But if you yeah. run out of things to say, then when all else fails, do like the boys do. Just repeat what somebody else yes. said. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. Move a comma, change a preposition. 
but say it, right? And, and don't you know, give credit to the person that, that said it. Absolutely. You don't, say, you don't say, just as Carla said. That's right. They you do pretend it. pretend like it was your brilliant idea. Yes, ma'am. Say it all the time. And, and Two women, minutes ago. And women ask me, well, suppose <laughs> I say something and then nobody makes a comment. And then Peter comes right behind me and he says the same thing. I said, then your response should be, Peter, thank you so much for supporting my point. I appreciate that. <laughs> right? Exactly. It is such a classic man yeah. thing to do. And they usually will steal the woman's Absolutely. Totally. Always. And, and the men listen to it. It's so classic. Man's so name. crazy. I literally once had a former boss say to me, and I thought he was joking. And so I started to <laughs> laugh after he said it. But he said, look, here's the way it is. He said, I just have to take credit for your successes and you have to take the hits for your failures. And I thought, literally, my first reaction was like, was he a politician? <laughs> no, he was not. <laughs> I'm just wondering. Could be. Could be. But I heard those words and I was so offended and, and I literally, I was shocked. First, I started to laugh and I realized, no, he was He's dead serious. serious. Oh, dead serious. Outrageous. Can I ask a particular question just because we were talking in front here, we we're talking about high heels and everything. And you mentioned you're under five feet tall. Yes, I am. How does that affect, because you're tall, I'm short, but not I'm as short flats. as you. Yeah. And she's in flats. Honestly, with meetings that I've gone to with men, I have put on my highest, I've been advised, put on your highest spike heels and you toddle in there no matter what you do, because if you're small, they are less intimidated. Is that true with you? What did you do? I have to platforms. Well, I, I wore heels for many years. I'm not, I'm a little bit of a klutz, so it was very hard for me. But I will tell you something interesting. So much of our business is conducted over the telephone. Obviously, there's email stuff, but I like to talk to people. I like to look at people in the face. And I think we've, our fallback has been to communicate too much by email, to communicate too much by social media. I don't think there's anything as gripping and compelling and as convincing as getting somebody in the room. But LA is a very big spread out community. And so I had to do a lot of business over the phone. So if I had met somebody and they met me for the first time, I cannot tell you the number of times people would say, you sound so much taller on the phone. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's funny. How is that possible? Okay. So, but I've come to accept it. Like I said, not being five feet tall, it's just who I am. But when you would go into meetings, you had a... Oh, absolutely. I've come to terms with it, but I had a lot of crooked neck problems, but uh, it's just the way it was. Okay, cool. All right. So let's talk about exhaustion and burnout that can happen because of the imposter syndrome, because you take on too much you doubt yourself, so you keep doing two and three times the work that everybody else does. Has anybody experienced that? And what do you do when you do experience it? And how do you get out of it? Absolutely experienced it. I think it's it's absolute power for the course, because I think one of the ways that you can advance, and I think the primary driver I've used in my career is to take on new things as a way of learning. So often we take on too many things because we have an appetite to learn And honestly, the biggest lesson that I had to learn, and back to my muscle comment, it's a muscle that I'm still developing, is learning to say no. And there's a sort of caveat to that. And that is, is that I used to say no, but I'd say no. And then I'd get into these convoluted explanations for why and almost sort of justifying it. And that's actually as exhausting as taking something on. And what I've learned to do now is just say no, I can't. 
And I'm not going to provide you with no a rationale. Needed. Right. Exactly. Okay. And I think you have to own that space. I think that's tremendously important because otherwise, particularly as you progress in your career, and I know all of you will share this, you get asked to do so many things and so many things that you're interested in and engaged yeah. by. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden you're just consumed. Right. Carla? Yeah. And that's the only thing that I repeat in both of my books, Expect to Win and Strategize to Win, is this concept of having an agenda. Yeah. That's why it's so important to have an agenda, because then you know why you are doing what you are doing, why you're in the seat that you're in, what kind of skills you want to get, experiences you want to get, people you want to meet, why you're in the house, why you're in that company. So when those opportunities come, then you have something where you can evaluate whether or not this makes sense for you to take on. Because if you don't, you will run into the burnout. And the two things that I think plague women and that really inhibit us from being able to ascend to where we should be or could be is fear and fatigue. Those two things. And fear early on in your career, but fatigue as you get more seasoned. So if you keep taking on those things, you will get tired. And I've seen so many women who are right there about to break through the ceiling and they say, you know what, I'm tired. I'm tired. And they don't because they perceive that it's going to take all of this energy. They will have to exert all of this energy that they just don't have anymore. So when you're feeling tired, you have to take a break. You have to step away. I certainly felt myself on that journey because I'm an executor at heart. And then all of a sudden, I'm in a space where I need to create. Right. And when you execute, if you have a lot of capacity. You can just keep piling it on. And I'm a really good executor. And then all of a sudden, I said, but wait a minute. If I'm filling up the calendar, executing, where do I create? Yeah, you right. Where's the right. white space? Right. Right. So I had to be disciplined and put white space in the calendar since I'm a calendar girl and say for two hours, I'm not executing. I'm not talking. I'm creating. And if nothing comes, well, that's what I did in those two hours. It was a space. I got to put it in there because otherwise there's no time to think and really innovate. And we're all competing in some way around innovation. Well, what's really interesting is I did suffer burnout. I did suffer after 30 years in the entertainment business. That'll do it. Uh, That'll do it. And you have a lot of needy people and a lot of people who literally, they don't go off the clock. I mean, it's 24-7. When they need you, they need you now. And everything is a life crisis. But when I stepped away from my job, I did it on my own terms. And I did it after I achieved the title I wanted. I had transformed the entire landscape of the network from daytime programming, primetime programming, late night programming, our summer strategy. I had accomplished everything I had wanted to accomplish, and I wanted to close that chapter and open a new one. And I cannot tell you the number of people who called me to say, are you crazy? How can you possibly do this? And I said, you know what? If I'm going to start a new chapter, I have to finish this one. And it's finished. There's nothing more to do. And the two things that I took away from that were I have my skills. They are portable. That's right. And they are adaptable. Wherever I go, they come with me. And that allowed me to start a new chapter in my life. I think women often, I don't know how you guys feel, but I think we often think that the skills and the accomplishments belong to the place we were at. Absolutely. And we don't realize that all of that goes in your back pocket. I remember when I was thinking of leaving Vogue, I was there for nine years as a writer and an editor. And I remember there are people there now, 30 years later, who were there when I was in my 20s and they couldn't leave. They were terrified of leaving. And I was going to leave. And I had a great therapist who said, you know what? You take those with you. That goes right. in your back pocket. That's part of your history. You can talk about it, all those skills. But we are afraid to leave 
because we think they don't come with us. Do you guys have that feeling at all? I think it's, I talk a lot about the fact that I think too often, particularly as you ascend the corporate ladder, you tend to wrap up your identity with the title. And you know, the trappings become very sybaritic. I mean, it's all of a sudden you think you're a legend in your own lunchtime. It's a fabulous thing. And you've really, really got to check yourself. And I always say to people, we are not one dimensional. We're three or four or five dimensional. And you need to have as much identity invested in your passions, your beliefs, and your family because unequivocally, the cylinders will not all be firing at the same rate at the same time. And what you need to be able to do is when work isn't going well, you've got to have the other things in your life boing you and vice versa. But if you get sort of sucked into this, hello, I'm an executive vice president. It's just, it's not imposter syndrome, it's poser syndrome. Right. And it's going to make you very unhappy. I had this sort of wake up call. I went to pick up my daughter from elementary school and I sort of sashayed in with my briefcase and my heels thinking, I am hashtag fabulous. (laughs) Make way. Made it. I've made it. It was a real, yeah, I've made it moment. And the woman at the desk said, I'm going to need to see an ID. They had never seen me because I had never been there to pick up my daughter. Uh, And that was a terrible wake up call for me. And I realized that I had to invest a lot more in that. And so it's just finding those right balances and not taking yourself too seriously. Yeah. It's a real slippery slope. So let's talk a little bit about the idea of how do you overcome the self-doubt and fear. So Carla, you talk about growing up in a no-nonsense, no-excuses household where your parents expected you to be outstanding. Suggest and suggest that what we need to do is simply own and honor our abilities and ambitions and get on with it. Mm -hmm. What if you didn't have a family like that? How can Mm -hmm. you incorporate that from friends? Do I come hang out with you? Do I read just (laughs) read the book? Does that incorporate it? What if my parents weren't those kinds of parents? Yes. I wasn't that lucky. Yes. Well, you pull your inspiration from the people who are around you because there's going to be somebody in your life that's going to continue to encourage you and tell you that you can do it. And sometimes it's the people that are following you. Sometimes it's somebody that's looking up to you saying, hey, you're so great, or you're my inspiration, or I believe in you. And it could be, as I said, somebody who's junior. Wherever you get it from, take that fuel and use it. It'd be nice if it's your parents, but sometimes it's not. I shared that with a couple of the colleagues in the audience that I had friends that I grew up with whose parents weren't as supportive. And even at 10 or 11 years old, I remember thinking, I don't think your mama telling you the right thing. Because they were saying things like, oh, well, you can't do this. You can't do that. And sometimes, unfortunately, your parents are the victims of wherever they came from. But don't use that as your excuse. Pull that inspiration from other people. The other thing I say is get really good at giving yourself the atta girl. You know, you're going to be in environments, especially highly dynamic, competitive, male-oriented environments, where the boys aren't always going to tell you that you did a good job. That's right. You have to know that you know that you know that you did a great job. And you got to get really good at saying, go ahead, girl, way to go. Right. I had lots of those moments, but it empowered me even more because I said, I know the fact that I'm still here throughout all of the economic cycles that happens on Wall Street, that I'm here because I'm that good. So even when they don't give me that credit, you say, way to go, girl. 
Good job. And even now on the golf course, when I'm playing with the boys and I drive them and they don't say anything, I'll say loudly, good drive, Carla. I know. We're all getting her phone number and we're going to call her. I'm going to give out her phone number again <laughs> so that we can all call her when we need that kind of help. Okay. A wonderful new book was published this year called What I Told My Daughter. Congratulations, Nina. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Please tell us about it and what as a mother made you write it. Well, I have to tell you something. Was, I needed it. I am a mother of two kids. I have a 28-year-old son. I have an 18-year-old daughter. When my son was seven, before my daughter was born, I was driving him to school. Because that's one thing I tried to do every single day was drive my son to school. And he said to me, you know, mom, boys are better than girls. So (laughs) (laughs) I'll show you. I'll have one. I pulled the car over. (laughs) I turned the engine off. (sighs) And I said, let me just tell you something, son. Boys and girls are different. Their bodies are different, but they're equal. I know that's a tough concept to get, but they're equal. They have the same dreams, the same ambitions. And I don't know if you remember that old Memorex ad where like the person was blown back in the chair. That poor kid, I think his face, he lost all color in his face, but he is the biggest feminist I know to this Uh, day. uh, But I can tell you, I was raised by a Puerto Rican mother and a Jewish father. They were very active in the civil rights movement. I was marching and protesting the war against Vietnam before. I was really fully aware of what was going on. When I was growing up, there was a woman's movement. I used to say all you had to do was step off the bank and you were swept up in the current. And then what happened is we got older and people thought, hey, we're good. We're done. In 1972, when I was in college, all of a sudden I realized, wait a minute, the ERA is we were ratified 32 states. And then thank you for the Schlafly and it was all over with. But I'll just tell you quickly, it was looking around and realizing that there wasn't a movement. And I had a daughter and I was bringing her up in this world and realizing, especially in the media, she was being bombarded by negative yes. images, yes. body images and the language and the way young girls were being treated. I said, I need help. I need help. But I need help from many different women, many different voices, because no one's living my life. We're all living different lives. We all have different experiences. So literally, I went to the bookstore and I said, there's got to be a book somewhere that's going to tell me what to do. I need to raise a feminist. I'm a feminist. Where do I find that? And I realized there wasn't one. And then I just said, well, if there's not one, I'm just going to do it. And I reached out to women across every spectrum, everybody from Ruth Bader Ginsburg to Nancy Pelosi to Laura Bush to Anwar Sadat's widow to entertainers to same-sex moms to stepmoms and realized that everybody has a story to tell. And everybody's story is about resilience and it's about gender equality. They're personal stories and they're intimate stories. And I find that I learn much better when someone shares their personal family story with me. And that was how we collected the essays. There are 54 amazing stories, heartwarming. It's not preachy and not how-to. They're heartwarming stories. Interesting. Okay. So I'm going to divert just a bit because we're talking about that here. Do you feel like there, I mean, we all felt like maybe a lot of the women's movement had been covered and this next generation was very complacent about it. Do you think there's a new rushing sense of water that's coming? Oh, bring it. Because of bring where it. we are? Every single, so, here's the rushing here's water the rushing right here. Water. There it is. Every one of you. Yeah. Part okay. of that. Is there something coming? I mean, as long as we're up here and, and we're talking to women like this about business and everything, do you feel like there's a new mantra or a new outlook or something that women are going to have to gird themselves for going forward? 
into 2017 for the next few years in, in terms of women's issues and women in business. Women and mothers make change happen, period. That's it. And whether or not you are political, every single person in this room is an activist. Every person in this world can make change. And you can do it simple and at home. You can do it as part of a group. I like to say that I practice one of three things every day. And that is I forward an informational email to a different cohort. I can sign a petition and it doesn't have to be political. It can be social. It can be environmental. It can be cultural. And lastly, I can donate money. It can be $50. It could be $5,000. And it could be something that I believe in. And fourth, and this is really important, support your print journalists. You know, they need our help right now. So get a newspaper or magazine subscription. Keep your online, keep your digital tablet, do all of that, but support your local journalists. It's very, very important. But those are things we can do. But women do make change, period. I think if I could add a fifth thing to your list, because I agree with every one of them, I think the other thing that I think we all have to do is be a lot kinder. I think there's just such negative rhetoric. And I think the impact that it has on our psyche is extraordinary. And we can all play a role. We can absolutely change that. And I always say to my daughter, be kind because you never, ever know what the other person is going through. And if they're the nastiest people in the world, that's actually double the reason to be kind. And I think if we can just sort of spread that, I think it could change how we feel dramatically. And the thing that I'll add is I think that we have to exercise our voice. Too often, people don't speak when they have something to say. Yes. And they need to speak because we can educate each other. We can support each other. I think that this whole election cycle, I think, has underscored the fact that we have to be active and stand up and be heard because either you lead, as the old saying says, you lead, follow, or get out of the way, right? right? And you get what you deserve if you don't speak, right? So it's important that I think women understand that we are no longer the minority in this country. We are the majority. We are 51%. So again, don't allow anybody to make you feel small or less than. Exercise your voice. Say, no, wait a minute, stop. This doesn't work for me, right? Or I want this, I deserve that, but you must speak. Good. Let's talk about a word that's really important going forward for everybody, authenticity. How do you bring that? That is one of the things that I think holds a lot of women back in business is they think I've got to be the same person here that I am at home with my kids and I am with my parents and blah, blah, blah. I struggled with that for so many years. Can you still be your authentic self and still bring in protection, bring in all different kinds of things into work and still be who you are? without feeling like you're somebody else at work? And how do you bring authenticity to the workplace? I would argue very strongly that if you're not authentic, you absolutely won't succeed because at some point it's going to catch up with you. And the one thing I always say to people is, you know, we've all done that, right? We've all been lured into the cosmetic counter who've offered us a makeover and then we emerge into daylight and we look like we're in a Halloween costume. Yes, (laughs) Certainly I have. And I extrapolate that to when you're pretending to be someone that you're not. It is exhausting. It comes with practice. I think it comes with confidence. But authenticity is not something you achieve. It's something that you are. And the person that you are inside is the most valuable piece to bring to work. And that means bring all of you to work and show all the colored feathers. There's nothing to be afraid of. 
I love this topic. This is my favorite topic. It is chapter one in Expect to Win. <laughs> oh, okay. I had so many people ask me, how can I bring my real self to the yes. table? And to, to your point, and I said earlier this morning, it is your competitive advantage. Totally. Because nobody can be you the way that you can be you. But the key to bringing all of who you are to work and your authentic self is to know who you are. So you have to start with spending some quiet time saying, who am I? What kind of friend am I? What kind of significant other am I? What kind of student am I? What kind of professional am I? What do I like about who I am? What would I like to change? What would I like to emulate and actually bring in what she does into who I am and the way that I do it? So first, figure out who you are. Second of all, understand that we're all multifaceted to your earlier point. There's not just one you. There is a kind you. There is an angry you, but understand who you are. And then you can be free to bring all of those people to whatever situation and then free to meet people where they are. I say to people all the time, sometimes I do business in the South. I know those boys cannot take full frontal Carla. So sometimes they get Carla light. They are Light. So is that as much a part of who that's, Carla is? You still feel that's authentic? Absolutely, because yeah. that's all of who you are. Okay, now your audience. Every one of us. I mean, we are so hyphenated. Yeah. We're working moms, tiger moms, soccer moms, snack moms, stay-at-home mom. But we're all of that. And that doesn't separate us. That brings us together as a community. We can be all of those things and still be ourselves. Awesome. On that note. So I would like to give them another huge round of applause. And you just heard from State Street EVP and Chief Marketing Officer Hannah Grove, Wall Street powerhouse Carla Harris, and media pioneer Nina Tesler. The session was moderated by the incredible Leslie Jane Seymour, media entrepreneur and the creator of Covey Club. Thanks for listening. We hope you found this session helpful, and we invite you to tune in for more best breakouts from the Conferences for Women. 